In a world with so many uncertain and confusing voices, isn't it wonderful to know that there's an objective truth outside of ourselves? That truth is found in the Word of God. That word, which Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is our foundation, and through it we learn the good news of Jesus Christ, the Gospel. This is Gospel Talk with Pastor Wes Bradenhoff. We invite you to join us today as we mine the riches of God's Word, searching as for hidden treasure, that we might understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Here's our pastor and teacher, Wes Bradenhoff. Good Monday afternoon to you. Welcome to another edition of Gospel Talk. You know, hymn abuse is a terrible thing to watch. And surely one of the most abused hymns in history has to be Amazing Grace by John Newton. No other hymn that I know of has been subjected to so much misuse, misappropriation, and misunderstanding. You know, if you go to the UK, you find sports fans sing it there like an anthem at, at soccer games. It's sung at the memorial services of unbelieving celebrities in an effort to console the grieving. The line, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Well, it contains the word lost, and so somehow that justifies using it to promote a TV show of that name. Amazing Grace is the world's favorite hymn, and it is the hymn that the world most loves to abuse. And part of the problem is that when John Newton wrote it, it was for his congregation of Christian believers. And for those Christian believers, the context was clear. The meaning, the background was clear. God's grace was in Jesus Christ. The gospel is where we find God's amazing grace. But to a certain degree, that was assumed in the hymn. And that, I think, has opened it up to all this abuse. You know, because if you think about it, what would God's grace in Jesus Christ for poor sinners have to do with a soccer game? What would the gospel have to do with someone who rejected it? The hour I first believed, when the departed loved one never believed in the Savior. What does the precious gift of eternal life through Christ have to do with a TV show about a group of people on an island? We can wish that John Newton would have been more explicit and that he would have assumed less. That might have spared us all this sacrilege. However, that doesn't take away from the fact that from a Christian perspective, the hymn does contain some beautiful words and biblical sentiments. Among them is the notion of once having been blind and now seeing. Newton knew what that was all about. He wrote the words on his own gravestone, and they say it all. This is what he wrote as his, his uh, epitaph. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. He had been blind, but was brought to sight by God's grace. And that's a biblical picture, an image that the Bible uses to describe those who are called out of darkness into God's wonderful light. 
It's an image of those who come to understand who Jesus Christ is and what he has come to do. It's an image that we also find in the Bible passage that we're going to be looking at this week on Gospel Talk. This passage is from Mark chapter 8, and it runs from verses 22 to 30. I'd like to read that with you right now before we continue. So this is Mark 8, verse 22, the word of God. Then he came to Bethsaida, he being Jesus, of course, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. You know, in the verses before this, we see the disciples in the boat crossing the Sea of Galilee. The boat was their classroom, and Jesus was their teacher, and he warned them about the teaching of the Pharisees and Herod. He warned them about the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious leaders and also the Jewish political leaders. And in verse 22, they reached their destination on the northern shore. It was the town of Bethsaida. And as they arrived there, a blind man was brought to Jesus. And those who brought him begged Jesus for healing. Now that word begging, that keeps coming up again and again in the Gospel of Mark. People are always begging Jesus, always imploring him, always requesting from him. And that is a a recognition of their place vis-a-vis him. It's a recognition of his authority and his ability to help. You know, the only ones in the the Gospels who demand things from Jesus are the Pharisees. They demanded a sign from heaven from Jesus in in the verses before this. But the Pharisees are the exceptions. Everyone else, when they they come to Jesus, they recognize who they are and who he is. Everyone else begs and implores Jesus, recognizing something of his authority and power. You simply don't order him around. So they come with these requests, these, these, they're imploring him. And the Lord Jesus doesn't ignore these requests. He becomes the guide for the blind man. He takes over for the blind man's friends and he leads him outside the village. Why does he take him there? Well, we're not explicitly told, but there is a pattern since chapter 5 in Mark of the Lord Jesus doing healings more secretly and then afterwards telling the person who is healed not to publicize it. And there seems to be two reasons for that. The first is that he wants the emphasis to be not on what he does so much as on what he is teaching at this particular point. 
And the second reason is that he wants to avoid unnecessary confrontations with the Jewish religious leadership before the time is right for his suffering and death, which takes place in Jerusalem. Those things have to take place in Jerusalem. And at this point, he's still a long ways off from that time and place. He's often in the northern part of Israel. And so Jesus takes him outside the village to a quieter spot. And then he does something that's rather unusual. He spit on the man's eyes. Now, the Lord Jesus has used saliva prior to this point. He used it at the end of chapter 7 in Mark when he healed the deaf and the mute man. And that was probably because people understood saliva in those days. It sounds odd to us, but they, had, they understood saliva to have medicinal properties. In this case, perhaps people would even think that the man was healed from his blindness because of the saliva rather than because of a miracle. And that would, again, be instrumental in, in turning the attention away from Jesus. which he doesn't, really, he doesn't really want that attention at this particular point. At any rate, it's difficult to say for sure what the reason for using saliva was. It's a difficult point. But anyway, he also put his hands on him on his eyes. And then the Lord Jesus asked, do you see anything? The man was beginning to see. He could see people walking or looking like walking trees. And by the way, that suggests that the man was not born blind, but he became blind later in life because a person blind from birth wouldn't know anything about what trees look like or people for that matter. The healing wasn't complete. It takes place in stages. And I'd ask you to take note of that because it's important. We'll come back to that. There are stages here in the man's healing. And in the second stage, Christ again puts his hands on the man's eyes. And then it happens. The blind man's eyes were open and his sight was restored and everything was the way that it should be. Now, blindness was, and still is today, a result of the fall into sin. It's not that the person who is blind has committed some sort of sin of one sort or another. Rather, it is because Adam and Eve in Genesis fell into sin, and they introduced disorder and disease and death into this world. So it's a result of the fall into sin. And Jesus comes as the one who reverses the effects of the fall into sin. Also the effects of the fall into sin on the human body. And this healing is a sign of that. This healing points ahead to the blessed day when there will be no blindness on the earth any longer. In the restored and redeemed creation, every single human eye will see the way that it was designed to. Corneas, retinas, pupils, rods and cones, irises, optic nerves, all of these parts will function the way they should. And all because of Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. There are going to be no glass eyes on the new earth, no contact lenses, no glasses, no white canes, and certainly no seeing eye dogs. We'll leave aside the question of whether there will be any dogs at all. I think that's an open question, but we can say for sure that there will be no seeing eye dogs. Job 19 is a well-known passage that speaks about the hope of the resurrection. 
Job says that he expects to see God with his very own eyes, his physical eyes. And Revelation 22, 3-4 tells us, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. They will see his face. We will all see him. Everyone who is believing in Jesus Christ will see. Friends, someday your eyes may fail you on this earth. Maybe they're failing you right now. And if they do or if they have, you can be confident that someday you will see again. Because Jesus is your Redeemer, and your Redeemer lives. Someday, your body will be like his glorious body. And that means that your sight will be restored to exactly the way that it was designed to be. And so after this wonderful event, after the man gets healed, the Lord Jesus sent this man back home, back to his home quietly. He was instructed not to go to the village, not to tell anyone. And again, for some reason, this was a time for not telling far and wide about the Lord Jesus and his power. And from Bethsaida, the Lord Jesus and his disciples head northward towards Caesarea Philippi. And we're going to look at what happens in the rest of this, these, the rest of these verses tomorrow. We've run out of time for today. Anyway, I do hope that today's program has been informative for you and also edifying. And I hope that God will continue to richly bless you in every single way. We're glad you joined us today on Gospel Talk with our host, Pastor Wes Bradenhoff. This program comes to you today through the generous support of the Willoughby Heights Canadian Reformed Church in Langley. The Willoughby Heights Canadian Reformed Church worships each Sunday at 10 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. And we always welcome visitors. You can find us in Langley at 7949-202-A Street. Again, that's 7949-202-A Street in Langley. You can also find the Willoughby Heights Church online at www.whcanrc.com. That's www.whcanrc.com. You can also call us toll-free at 1-866-288-1087. Again, that number, 1-866-288-1087. Or email us at gospeltalk at hotmail.com. That's gospeltalk, all one word, at hotmail.com. Thanks again for joining us today. We hope that our time together has been a blessing to you. This has been Gospel Talk with Pastor Wes Bradenhoff.